Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, the past two episodes, we've looked at the concept of demons and the demonic, uh, and how the New Testament and the Old Testament talk about idolatry, the worship of demons, and what accompanies or is associated with demons. And one of the main points I wanted uh, to bring out of that is that uh, idolatry, the worship of false gods, is uh, essentially the worship of demons, even though those who engage in idolatry might not think that they're demons, uh, behind the idol is some sort of spiritual uh, demonic power, and that these powers uh, are associated with certain ideas, beliefs, and practices. Um, and, and that, therefore, the worship of those false gods, if you will, um, end up being the worship of demons and have certain practices associated with them, certain false beliefs. And so now what I want to do on today's episode is look at one of the main um, pagan deities in the ancient Near East. We're gonna, I'm going to look at three of them over the course of this series, but the first one we're going to look at is Baal. And I want to look at what the worship of Baal entailed, uh, what it looked like in the ancient Near East, and how it continues uh, today, and what it looks like today, or maybe some of its principles have continued today. So, uh, it's a tall order. I don't know if we're going to get through all of it today, but I want to begin by looking at just broadly uh, pagan deities. Okay, and, and what, what paganism um, entails and what is involved with paganism. So, uh, one, one source I found to be very, very helpful is an article written by Peter Jones uh, about 20 years ago. He's a professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in California. And you can find his article, I think it's on the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, but he does work on paganism. And he looks at some of the things that are associated with that. But the three main points of paganism that, that seems to be true in all of pagan belief, first of all, is that uh, everything is unity. So in the sense that all roads lead to the same place. There are many roads to the top of the mountain. So one person's belief, another person's religion, another person's belief, doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, they're all the same. They're just different flavors, and they all are basically equally valid, essentially. There's, there's no differentiation between false and truth there. Uh, they're just as true and correct as others. And then the, other, the second one, the second main point, is that there's a divine spark inside of each of us. This is not the same thing as image of God, okay? And that's a, it's a very slight uh, change. Uh, it's one thing to say that we're made in the image of God and that we're image bearers of God. It's another thing to say that we have a divine spark or an aspect of divine or divinity inside each of us. Because what that refers to is that uh, the true source is in, the, is in ourselves. Self is center. And reaching your inner, your true self is the pathway to enlightenment, to wisdom, to God, if you will. You must journey inward in order to attain uh, this truth, uh, this divine revelation. Uh, 
And then, then the last point is a sense of uh, trying to escape or be set free from the constraints of this world. And these constraints could include uh, the presence of sin and death, pain and suffering, or, or even just biological uh, realities. So all these constraints that we're trying to escape from and overcome uh, as humans, that's part of the, the pagan mindset. And that could involve using uh, drugs and, and hallucinogens. Um, it also could refer to escaping from the cycle of death and rebirth. That seems to be common, uh, for example, in Hinduism. So that is a, a, a three-point uh, summary of what paganism uh, believes and holds to. And, and most pagan belief systems, probably, probably all actually, I think Peter Jones would argue all of them uh, utilize those three uh, key elements. So when it comes to categories of deities or pantheon of gods, um, there are several articles I've read that have done a very good job of breaking it down and summarizing um, different categories of deities. And, and ultimately, those who have looked through the history of mythologies and other religions find the same uh, general themes, that there's essentially three categories that all deities fall into. So even though uh, a mythology might have hundreds of gods, thousands of gods perhaps, all of them can be categorized in one of three ways. You have gods of nature, gods of inner consciousness, and gods of action or events. Let me kind of break that down a little bit further. So the gods of nature uh, basically involve our attempt to control the world, the natural world, and usually relates to the concept of the fact that we live in a broken world full of death and decay. Nature is red and tooth and claw. Nature is chaotic. Nature is destructive. Um, we live in it, but we can't control it. So you have gods of nature, right? The second category is gods of inner consciousness. So our identity, who we are, you know, this brokenness of identity, who I think that I am, who I believe myself to be, what I'm for, okay, where I came from. That's gods of inner consciousness or identity. And then you have gods of events or actions. So I want to do something. I want to uh, build this building. I want to harvest this crop. I want to raise a family. I want to get married. All these events or actions, uh, the act of taking dominion, uh, human attempt to uh, achieve success and to avoid failure, that uh, there's also a category of gods for that. So gods of nature, gods of inner consciousness, and gods of events and actions. So now, some deities overlap in their domains. They cover multiple things. But they all have this common theme about them that they fall under these three categories. And what's interesting about paganism and, and these false gods is that it's very decentralized. I mean, all these people groups throughout the, the world, history of the world, they all had their gods that they believed, right? There was no top-down uh, standard or uniform belief system. But, uh, you know, you have gods over here, you have gods over here different parts of the world. And what's interesting is that a lot of those gods share um, qualities and characteristics, even if they have different different names. So there is a, uh, a plurality or diversity among them 
but there's also a unity, a common theme. And it's probably due because of the fact that, well, we're all humans. We're all, uh, we all have a fallen human nature. So we all, in that sense, kind of are in the same boat. Fallen human nature is going to have common, uh, common practices or common um, outworkings that, that all cultures see, right? And then there's also the fact that there are demons. And the, and the demons, the demonic realm, which is a real realm, they also have uh, not only diversity, but they have a unity as well, a unity of the hatred of God and the hatred of the image of God. So now when we look at the Old Testament, uh, there seems to be, even though there's a variety of false gods that Israel uh, worships or falls into idolatry with, there are three gods that seem to be the main focus or the main culprits, the main issues that Israel and the prophets of Israel are dealing with. And they are Baal, Asherah, and Moloch. Now, they all, they all have different names, though, depending on what culture you're in. So Baal is also known as Chemosh or Chemosh. Not sure exactly how that's pronounced. Asherah is known also as Ishtar. And Moloch is known also as Milcom. Okay, so this is an example of what we see in uh, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. Now here's, here's the story of Solomon uh, when he becomes king and turns away from loving the Lord. In 1 Kings 11, uh, verses 1 through 8, it says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So we have the big three mentioned there. You have Chemosh of Moab, Moloch of Ammonite, and you have Asherah of the Sidonians. And these three gods are also the primary reason for God's judgment against Israel. So if you just go down a little further in 1 Kings 11, uh, going to first, uh, to verse 31 through 33, and here's what it is said uh, from the Lord. Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. So with those three in mind, let's now begin taking a look at Baal. Who is Baal? What is Baal even referring to? Well, in the original language, 
Baal is simply the word for Lord or Master. That's all it means. It, it's not a proper noun per se. It just means Lord or Master. And the plural would be Baalim, uh, which simply means gods or lords. So when referring to a general deity, the word Baal is typically used, you know, the Lord or the Master. But if you're referring to a specific deity, that deity's name, uh, proper name, would be used. So, for example, uh, Chemosh is the proper name for the Baal of Moab, the lord or master of Moab. And the word Baal is usually paired with like a location or a characteristic in Scripture. Let me just give a couple examples. You have Baal of Zephon, which is Exodus 14.9. You have Baal of Peor, so a territory, uh, Deuteronomy 4.3. You have Baal of Gad. Joshua 13.5, you have Baal Berith, Judges 8.33, that means Baal of Covenants, and you have Baal Zebub, uh, God of Ekron, 2 Kings 1.3, which is Baal of Heaven or Baal of the Lofty Heights. So why do we have all these Baals? Well, in the ancient world, in the ancient thinking, anything that appeared to have a mystery or a power behind it was just deemed to have a Baal behind it. So just think of it as, a thing you don't understand that has a lot of power and it seems chaotic, uh, but if, if, it's, if it's against you, it's very, very bad, and you kind of want it to be on your side. You want to kind of control it or manipulate it or at least keep it from destroying you, but you don't really understand it, but it's full of power, okay, and a mystery behind it. So this was very common with aspects of nature. Uh, springs, rivers, trees, animals, mountains, volcanoes, and storms. Because typically those were things that were very awe-inspiring and were very powerful and could be sources of fear, okay? So essentially, it's a personification of nature or of the object, right? There was uh, understood to be an intimate connection between the Baal, the master, the spiritual master, and the object that you're talking about. And the Baal could not exist without that object. If you were to destroy that object uh, or destroy that territory, you would basically destroy the Baal that's behind it. So you're associating uh, a personal powerful force to something that's found in nature. It's uncontrollable, unpredictable, but real and powerful. And there's mystery in how it works and how it, how it functions. So how did the ancient people react to these kinds of uh, views of Baals or Baalim? Uh, well, you would try to discern what the Baal wanted. What, did, what does it want? What does it need? Um, you're fearful of it. you got to placate it to avoid wrath or danger. Or you, maybe you want to try to use it against your enemies to kind of manipulate it or control it through rituals. And that's where we get the concept of magic, uh, an attempt to tap into power and wield power, direct power, and typically over nature, uh, sometimes over people, but mostly over nature. And so magic and sorcery is an attempt to use the Baal or to manipulate the Baal or to placate the Baal to get the outcome that you want, to get the result that you want. Um, because you weren't really sure how it worked, so you would try to figure it out or try to make up a way uh, that it would work. 
So that is a general understanding of what a bale is. And there were many, many bales. But there's also a universal quality to bale, a universal characteristic to bale. And there's a sense in which there is a bale who is one person or one spiritual being. Now, this is derived from the mythology of Baal. And Baal is a, in the histories, in the mythologies, such as the epic of Baal, the Baal cycle, Baal is a storm god. And he's also symbolized by a bull or a bull calf, a young bull. Uh, maybe sometimes even serpents or snakes are associated with Baal. But, but he wields lightning bolts, and he's associated with storms and thunder. Because those aspects of nature were the most awe-inspiring, the most mysterious, and the most powerful. So it makes sense that the storms, or the bale of storms, is the greatest or most powerful bale. But there's also a connection with politics and, and conquest uh, of one nation over another, um, as well as the cycles of the seasons. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So let's now take a look very briefly at one of the ancient mythologies, the Epic of Baal. Now this was written, I think, around 1400 BC. It might be a little older than that. At least maybe the earliest rendering, the earliest example we have is from around that time. But essentially, Baal is a god. He's the most aggressive of the gods. And he dwells near the city of Ugarit in ancient Near East. Uh, and he lives on Mount Zaphon. And Zaphon simply means north. It's the word for north. So he's the lord of the north, or the lord of North Mountain. And in the mythologies, Baal desires power. He wants to be the king of all the gods. And he views the other gods, and there's several of them. One is called Yam, the other is called Nahar. Uh, he views them as tyrants. And Baal does not want to bow to anyone. And one of the verses in the Epic of Baal says, uh, Baal will not bow to Prince Yam. He will not be the slave of Judge Nahar. He declares once more that he shall slay the tyrant lord of the gods. So he wants to take power. And he's eventually given weapons, lightning and, and thunder, from other gods, and he's able to do this. He's able to defeat Yam and Nahar, and he becomes uh, king of the gods. Uh, and he wants um, all these other gods, particularly Asherah, the goddess, to build him a house. He needs a house. Now that he took over, he basically needs a temple or a palace. And Asherah, who's viewed as the queen of heaven, she helps him to build his house. So that's, they, they are partnered together in a lot of ways. Now, Baal then goes on to conquer earthly cities of man. So this is kind of where it does touch on the political or touch on how humans interact with each other. He wants to be lord over the whole world. But uh, the god of death, Mot, challenges Baal and fights him, and Baal is killed by Mot, who's the, who's the god of the underworld, the god of death. Now, Another goddess comes into the picture named Anath, or Anat, depends on how you, uh, the spelling. Uh, she is viewed as either Baal's sister or lover or both. There's some uh, confusion in the documents, uh, some disagreement among scholars. Um, but either way, she gets involved. Um, she sometimes is linked to Asherah or Ishtar. But again, we'll talk about that later. But when Baal is killed by Mot, uh, Anath begins to grieve. She starts shouting, Baal is dead, Baal is dead. And the mythology describes her as cutting herself. She would cut her face, cut her arms, cut her chest a a in an act of mourning. 
and she finds Baal and she buries his body. But then, out of vengeance, she finds Mot, the god of the underworld. She kills him, uh, rips him into many pieces, and scatters his body like fertilizer. And this brings Baal back to life. And Baal retakes his throne, but then Mot somehow comes back to life and challenges Baal again, and they fight to a standstill. Ultimately, the other gods support Baal, and eventually Mot uh, grudgingly submits to Baal's uh, lordship. Now, as far as Anath goes, she goes on to continue with her spout of vengeance, but this time her vengeance is, is against all of those humans who didn't support Baal, and I think it might be all of mankind, honestly, because the, the, the document, the mythology, doesn't really distinguish. Here's what it says. It says, She smites the people of the seashore, destroys mankind of the sunrise. Under her are heads like vultures, over her are hands like locusts, pouring the oil of peace from a bowl. The virgin Anath washes her hands. She washes her hands in the blood of soldiery, her fingers in the gore of troops. So you have this, this very violent, angry virgin who's going out and waging war against mankind because they didn't support Baal enough in his struggle against death. So anyways, that is the Baal cycle, and it's all about constant struggle. Struggle against nature, struggle against other gods, other powers, and there's a sense in which it relates to the cycle of nature, the seasons where Baal is dead, and it's winter, or the, or the dry season, and then Baal comes back, and he's a storm god, so that brings the rains, and then life returns uh, from that. So there's an aspect of uh, the cycle of seasons, as well as politics um, and power uh, in this. Now, there's other versions of the Baal, the Baal narrative, and a lot of these stories are very similar and overlap. Just, for example, the Amorites had a, a god called Hadad, Assyrians had their god called Adad, uh, the Greeks, it was Zeus, uh, Zeus is Baal, uh, uh, in, in, in the Greek language, uh, Jupiter for Romans, Thor for the Norse, and then Tammuz for the Sumerians. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, a lot of this, it, it just, it's the same God, different language. So I mentioned before that the word Baal means Lord. Well, in Hebrew, the word Adonai means Lord, and it's the same root word for Adonis. So Adonis is a God of Egypt, um, which would be akin to Baal. Uh, in in uh, the Canaanite language, so you know it's it's the same overlapping themes in all of these in all of these uh, mythologies. Now, those who worshipped Baal in the ancient Near East, how did they do it? What were they doing? Well, generally speaking, the worship of Baal involved mourning his death, uh, mourning his fall to the god of the underworld, and that would include shaving your head casting dust into the air. Um, now, there, well, I'll talk more about this later, but women were also encouraged to shave their head, but instead, they could also sell themselves in ritual prostitution and give the money to Baal instead of giving their hair. We can, well, I'm going to talk about that when I get to the goddess of Asherah. But for now, I'm just going to focus on, on Baal. It also involved tattooing oneself, um, one's face and one hand, one's hands. We see this in the book of Leviticus, God's prohibition against this. He, he says to the people of Israel, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So that's the, the basic uh, 
premise there. Now, you, you they would also in, uh, enter into an emotional frenzy or ecstasy with dancing and music and probably, probably drug uh, or alcohol-induced uh, states of mind where you would get involved in fortune-telling. There would be a lot of weeping and limping because they are reenacting, if you will, the mourning that Anath uh, made, the cutting of herself, the the putting on it of ash, the cutting of her hair, um, the idea of, of limping because Baal is injured, he's wounded. So you have these ecstatic frenzies. And you see the clearest example of this in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah is challenging the prophets of Baal. So here's what it says in 1 Kings 18, verse 25 through 30. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So you see here the limping, the the frenzy, the raving, uh, the shouting, and the cutting of themselves. So very... A very ecstatic, very emotional uh, group kind of mentality here. And and they would also pour out drink offerings, usually wine or animal blood, but sometimes human blood, and we'll get to human sacrifice uh, later on, mostly with Moloch. Again, they're very much tied uh, to each other. Uh, and then also involved in kneeling to and kissing the idol, because remember, Baal is supposed to be the king of the gods. He took over the thrones. So we see this mentioned um, when God speaks to Elijah uh, and, he, and he says, uh, God says to him, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there's a, a bowing and a kissing to the idol as well. Now, Baal worship usually took place in the high places and that generally refers to where heaven meets earth. So the highest point of the land, usually hills and mountains. Because, you know, if you tie it all together, storms usually develop over mountain ridges. Uh, a lot of times that's, that's what happens. And also, that is as close to heaven as you can get, where heaven and earth meet would be the top of a mountain. So uh, those were considered to be very, very holy places, the high places. And they would set up a stone altar to, to Baal there. So he was uh, a god of the stones, if you would. And usually it was paired with Asherah worship. You would have the altar of Baal and then the sacred tree or the sacred pillar, the totem pole uh, for, for Asherah. Now, that is the worship of Baal in the Old Testament. So now, what does the New Testament have to say about this god Baal? Well, a little bit. Uh, and it's actually quite interesting. So Baal is kind of mentioned, uh, is, his name is changed in the New Testament to Beelzebul. So that would be Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. And this is in the context of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees were accusing 
Jesus of using the power of demons to cast out demons. So they, they even say in verse 24 of Matthew 12, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay, so where does that word come from? Because it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, Beelzebul. Well, the original name of this god, this prince of demons, is Baal-zebub. Okay, so again, Baal means Lord, and Zebub means heaven, or the lofty heights. And essentially, he's the lord of the flyers, the, the prince of the power of the air, the lord of floating and flying spirits. And that's where, I think, Paul gets the phrase, prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, referring to Satan. And uh, one author named J.C.L. Gibson, and he wrote the work uh, Theology of the Baal Cycle, he described Baal's above as having, quote, hegemony over the air that men breathed and the wind that controlled the climate and weather, end quote. Now, this Baal's above is mentioned in two places in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 5, 10 through 12, and 2 Kings 1, 1 through 17. It's the God of Ekron, the God of the Philistines in Ekron. Uh, and in, in both places, Baal-zebub is mentioned as the God of the Philistines in Ekron. And so, this, this particular God was, was worshipped by Israel. Uh, they engaged in idolatry with that particular uh, God of the Philistines. Now, we see in 2 Kings that King Jehu tries to purge and reform the worship of Israel by destroying uh, the prophets of Baal and tearing down the altars. Here's what it says in 2 Kings 10, uh, 18-27. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests, let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a psalm assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. So King Jehu turns the temple of Baal into a latrine or a toilet. And there seems to be a play on words that the Israelites use. So, whereas the god used to be called Baal-zebub, they change his name in kind of mockery to Baal-zebul. Because zebul refers to flies or dung, like a dung heap. Uh, so, it would have been 
Baal Zebul is Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. So in the New Testament, Beelzebul is that. That's who they're referring to. And he's understood to be the prince of demons. And Jesus affirms this understanding uh, in the Gospels. Now, that is where we get Beelzebul and the Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Dung Heap. So So that's how the New Testament understands Baal. Now, what are the themes of Baal? I've mentioned them, I mentioned them already a little bit, but I want to go over them again. So, Baal is served so that nature and mankind can be kept under control to avoid chaos, destruction, and death. And it's a response to fear, power, and the unknown, to that which is mysterious. And Baal is served in order to attain mastery or power over that thing or to overturn an established hierarchy. It's all about domination and overthrowing pre-existing uh, established authorities. Here is uh, one, one statement made by one scholar named Aaron Tugenhoft, who wrote Politics and Poetics in the Baal Cycle. Here's what he says. The passage does not ascribe sovereign authority to an enduring order. On the contrary, it works to unsettle any absolute notion of above and below. In the world of the Baal Cycle, no fixed hierarchy underlies political relations. If Baal eventually acquires the right to rule, it is not because his kingship is a constituent element of an ordered universe. In other words, Baal doesn't have a natural right to rule. He takes it by force, and that's what he wants to do. That's, it's all about um, tyranny and anarchy, and it's kind of a weird, a weird mix, right? Anarchy in the sense of rebellion against the established authority, but tyranny in the sense of wanting manipulation and domination over nature and over mankind. And this makes sense because this is characteristic of Satan. Baal and Satan are, I mean, it's the prince of demons, right? Because why? Because Satan's intent is to claim divine power, to overturn God's authority, and to subjugate everyone, everything under him. He wants to subjugate God's creation, and that includes nature and mankind. So the two things that God made, the world and mankind, those things must be brought under tyrannical uh, subjugation by Baal. And Baal needs to overthrow uh, God's authority, the the already established hierarchy of the world. And Ultimately, everything's about power. It's a, it's a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing. And I think C.S. Lewis really hit on this, uh, perhaps even inadvertently, but he hit on this very well, I think, in the book Screwtape Letters. So in that book, you have one demon, Uncle Screwtape, writing to his nephew Wormwood about how to wage war spiritually against humans and against the people of God. And here is what the demon Screwtape says to his nephew demon, Wormwood. He says this, The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands... It does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom 
out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. That's uh, from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. What is this thought process? How does this apply in the modern world? Well, if I had to summarize two areas in which we see this concept of tyrannical dominion over nature and over mankind, we see it in, first, climate alarmism. That's the power over nature. Just think of it this way. Think of the fact that, you know, the climate is a mysterious, powerful force, and it's personified. Mother Nature or nature is angry at us. You know, there's this, there's this wrath coming because of our, you know, disobedience or, or whatever we've done wrong, right? And there's a mystery to, to this, this climate. And we have these formulas and these, and these graphs and these models and we, and we're trying to understand them, but we're not really sure. And there's all this data that we can't really wrap our minds around. And, and weather and climate is very complicated. So, but we have these prophets that speak of an impending doom of climate change and global warming, right? And these things require new doctrines, new rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, as, as Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2. And these rules target marriage and eating, okay? And this is, this is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. An abstinence or a forbidding of marriage or a refraining from certain foods, and what is it now that the climate alarmists and the extreme environmentalists, what do they demand? Well, they demand a reduced population. So no marriage, no babies. Uh, we need to reduce CO2 output and no eating meat, particularly cows, right? And, and, and their obsession on cows, you know, methane from cows and the eating of cows. Um, it's very strange, right? I wonder if it's no coincidence that the, the bales, uh, Baal is considered the prince of the power of the air, and Baal was always associated with a bull or a bull calf, you know, the, the golden calf being an example of uh, the worship uh, of Baal. And yet, our modern climate alarmists and environmentalists are obsessed with air, particularly CO2, and they're obsessed with bulls, with, with cows, and, and the not eating of them, right? Some kind of, as if they were sacred, but not really, right? It's kind of strange. The whole thing is very, very... Uh, strange, and it can't really be that much of a coincidence. But the point is, is that the powers, the mysterious powers of nature must be satisfied or placated. And what it requires is authority by the state, by the government, uh, more centralized power, more centralized authority in order to completely control everything and to manipulate these bales and this power. And then the other example of where we see, I think, Baalism or Baal thought is in the concept of critical theory, the power over man. Because in critical theory, everything is a zero-sum game. Uh, it's only the world. The world is all about power. It's only the oppressor, those who have power, versus the oppressed, those who are powerless. And the hierarchy, the current established hierarchy, is an oppressor. And just like Baal overthrew the established hierarchy in the same way. Uh, our current hierarchy is viewed as tyrannical and needs to be torn down by Baal and overturning of authority structures. But in return, Baal wants power. He wants to be established on the throne and he demands absolute total power as well. And those who don't give it will be destroyed by his sister slash lover, Anath, who will wage war against humans for not supporting Baal, right? So it's interesting. You have 
you have a call for, for rebellion and anarchy or, or tearing down of the structures, but then you have an establishment of a new structure, but that new structure is very intolerant, and that new structure is tyrannical and very coercive and very forceful uh, over those who have just been, uh, quote-unquote, set free from tyranny. So, uh, and it's interesting that with intersectionality and identity politics, it's almost as if there are many bales. You know, there's a bale of BIPOC people of color, and there's a bale of, of race, and there's a bale of gender, and there's a bale of sexual orientation, and, and a bale of uh, biological sex, and a bale for this and a bale for that. And you have intersectionality. You know, this person is a, a, a black woman transgendered person. So there's a lot of bales there. This identity politics is as if we're living in a realm full of bales. Uh, but there's one ultimate bale uh, who is all about power and all about overthrowing the established hierarchy. So I think these mindsets, uh, climate alarmism and critical theory, power over nature and power over man, I, I think that that is the modern uh, uh, application of Baal worship. That is the modern worship of Baal uh, today. And it just has a different form than what it did in the past, but it is nonetheless real and nonetheless still demonic. Anyways, we went long today, but I wanted to get through all of that. And what I want to do next time is look at the goddess Asherah. We mentioned her a little bit today, but we need to definitely take a look at that next time. So if you have any questions or comments about what was talked about today, please uh, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com and share this show with friends, neighbors, co-workers, uh, the more the merrier, just trying to get this information out to as many people as possible. Uh, so again, thank you for listening today, and until next time, take care and God bless.